When I think of the enormity of all the problems that face our world these days, in one way, oddly, I'm actually an eternal optimist. That's really the only way I can think to describe the way I continue to search for that one miraculous thing that we can change and everything will be much better. So I, you know, get these ideas in my head like if we just had a guaranteed universal basic income, so many other things would would be better. Or if we could figure figure out a way to incinerate garbage, turn the heat into energy without emissions, I mean, everything would be better. Or if we could fully educate our entire population to recognize truth as I recognize it, then everything would be better. And I say I must be an eternal optimist because no matter how many times I realize my great ideas are not going to work or they won't have as much of an impact as they will, I still keep thinking one day I'm going to find that one and I keep trying to think of them. At the same time, more and more people are becoming aware of the, the truth that nibbling at the corners of our problems is not enough. For example, increasing fuel efficiency in automobiles a few miles per gallon every decade is not going to fix problems. Relying on gun control state by state is not good enough. Encouraging diversity training in the workplace is good, but it's not going to eliminate racism. Incremental change will never right the wrongs of this world. The wrongs are too deep and too vast. Unfortunately, the church in the United States has peddled the same approach in its actions and teachings. Our understanding of who we are as the body of Christ and our understanding of what Christ came to do has been dominated by people who were too satisfied with the status quo. People who were too satisfied with the idea that Jesus came to help a few bad people get a little better, help save a few souls to heaven. But that's not it. Jesus came to save the whole of creation, to change this entire world into the kingdom of God. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, this story this morning from Luke reveals to us that incremental changes won't right the wrongs of this world. Our hope to set things right is the wholesale change that Christ offers. The easy approach to this particular story is to look at it as an, a story about incremental change. In this approach, it's a beautiful story, a beautiful story about Jesus offering individuals new life. And the focus then points almost 
exclusively to the very end of the story. A murderer and insurrectionist, Barabbas, uh, has been caught and sentenced to death. He is entirely guilty as charged. He is going to get the penalty that he deserves. Jesus, on the other hand, is entirely innocent. Entirely innocent of the things that he is being charged for, which we hear in verse 2. They began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. Having read the rest of the story of Luke, we know that these charges are false. Jesus is innocent of particularly the charges of sedition and uh, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. Somehow, uh, even Pilate picks up on this. He knows that Jesus is innocent. In verse 4, Pilate, for whatever reason, comes back and says to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Then again, in verses 14 and 15, I've examined him in your presence and I have found no basis for your charge against him. And again, verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Jesus is entirely innocent. And yet, the Roman government had a tradition of releasing one prisoner at the time of Passover as sort of a pacification uh, and goodwill gesture. Pilate wants it to be Jesus. But the crowds want Barabbas. And we hear what happened. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that Jesus be crucified, and so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So Tom Wright gives us a very common summary of this particular story in this version of it. This is, in fact, he writes, the climax and the focus of the whole gospel. This is the point for which Luke has been preparing us all along. All sinners, all rebels, all human beings are invited to see themselves in the figure of Barabbas. God's mercy reaches out where he human mercy could not, not only sharing, but in this case, substituting for the sinner's fate. Now, for me, this interpretation has both truth and beauty in it. Jesus does put himself in our place fully. He dies our death so that we might be incorporated into his body, and into the fullness of eternal life. This story, therefore, offers hope for forgiveness, restoration for every human being. Again, 
Daryl Bach, uh, Dallas professor, writes, Barabbas' story is our story. Jesus freed us by his death, just as Barabbas was freed. Barabbas' freedom is a portrait of our escape from death. True and beautiful. This is essential for the hope of people who are particularly burdened with guilt or feeling beyond redemption or reconciliation, for people who don't understand the depth of God's love for them. But to leave it at that is to limit the hope of the story. The incremental lives being set right because of Jesus and the the truth and beauty of this part of the message, those incremental lives are a reason for joy and celebration. But this story points toward Jesus setting right the wrongs of the whole world, not just individuals. In this story, the whole world is indicted in the crime against God. In both Pilate and Herod, we see the failure of the world's political systems to bring justice and restoration. Pilate had the full power of the Roman Empire behind him. He could have stopped this execution at any point along the way if he had truly wanted to. And he even knows that Jesus is innocent. Again, Daryl Bach sums it up succinctly. Given the choice between justice... And a mass uprising? The Galilean teacher is a sacrificial lamb who does not deserve the punishment meted out. Herod could have helped Pilate, helped provide some some political coverage, but he shirked his duty and sent him back to Pilate. In the chief priests and the teachers of the law, we see the failure of the world's religious systems to bring justice and restoration. In verse 10, it is specifically the the chief priests and the teachers of the law who are standing there vehemently accusing him of things for which he's not guilty. In the particular phrasing, of the accusations that they brought before Pilate, William Barclay has an inkling that the world's, for lack of a better word, plutocrats are complicit in this murder as well. Uh, Barclay notes that in the court of the, the church, the religious court, which was called the Sanhedrin, the charge that they had brought was one of blasphemy, of, of saying that he was the son of God. Before Pilate, that charge was never mentioned, Barclay writes. They know well that it would have carried no weight with Pilate, the Roman governor. The charge leveled against Jesus was entirely a political charge, and it has all the marks of the minds of the Sadducees, the aristocratic collaborationists, lest Jesus produce a situation in which they lose their wealth, their comfort, and their power.
And finally, the whole mass of humanity is seen as complicit in the role of the crowds. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man, I've ex- examined him, found no, bo- uh, no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, therefore, therefore I will punish and release him. With one voice, the crowd cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed again, but they, the crowd, kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he wants to to send him away. But with loud shouts, the crowd insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. The crowd, this mass of humanity. It is not just individuals who are in need of forgiveness and redemption. It is the whole of humanity and the systems that we create that need to be set right. Incremental changes won't do it. Our hope for setting right the wrongs of this world is wholesale change, the wholesale change that Jesus offers. On Friday... Um, this week, the syndicated columnist Nicholas Kristof uh, wrote a piece for the New York Times entitled A Dummy's Guide to Democratic Policy Propositions or something like that. Yeah. Um, he begins the piece, we in the news media often whack politicians for not being serious about policy and then we ignore their policy proposals. So he gives this quick guide to some of the uh, recent policy proposals. But he also gave another reason for writing this piece other than trying to set right a, a media mistake. He notes, I write it because something fascinating is underway. After decades of incrementalism, Democrats are now proposing a litany of exciting, big ideas. And I agree with Christoph that many of these ideas are exciting, and they're exciting to me because they are big enough to affect significant change, not just tiny modifications. Incremental change is not enough. For me, one of the positives that has come out with our recent uh, discussions on a national level about racism, for me, it has been the awareness of how whole systems of our society are infected by racism and misogyny. Changing the hearts and minds and actions of individuals is a good thing, but it's not enough to set everything right. Massive, massive structural changes must occur to to bring full justice, peace, and hope for Native Americans, for people of color, for people who are poor, for people who are disenfranchised for whatever reason. Incremental change is not enough. We have to think bigger. And ultimately, our hope is in the Christ the anointed one, Jesus. 
in his death and resurrection. Jesus takes on himself the worst of our world, including whole systems and even death itself. And he triumphs over them all, which we celebrate every Sunday, but again significantly at Easter time. A century ago, the, the theologian P.T. Forsythe wrote a lot about the immensity, the enormity of what Christ means to the world. At one point, he's quoted in this book saying, writing, The cross is the crisis of the moral universe on a scale far greater than earthly war. And he wrote this specifically, he was writing in response to World War I, which was just horrifying and devastating. But he says the, Christ, the cross is the crisis of the moral universe on a scale far greater than earthly war. It is the whole God dealing with the whole soul of the whole world in holy love, righteous judgment, and redeeming grace. That gets after the enormity of, of what Christ's coming and death and resurrection means to the whole of our world. Jesus' act of allowing himself to suffer his specific crucifixion was good news not only for a guy named Barabbas. It was good news not only for every individual human being who comes to know God's love and grace through Christ. It is good news for the whole of creation. Incremental change will not set right the wrongs of this world, but Jesus not only can, but will. Thanks be to God.